Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 6, 11, through chapter 5, verses 1. She, who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. He, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens, and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. She. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. He. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Friends, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, uh, good morning. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and it really is a privilege for me to come this morning to share God's word and to look into it with you. We live in a world that is obsessed with love. Someone once said that our culture believes not that God is love, but that love is a God. And it, it makes an idol out of love and sex and beauty. And we see this everywhere. Movies, social media, songs and art. And it's understandable why. Because love is perhaps the strongest earthly force that humans can feel. The closest thing to a transcendent experience that we can have. 
It makes our hearts swell and soar or come crashing down in despair. It can humble the strong and lift up the lowly. And it's not temporal, it's timeless. Homer wrote the Iliad thousands of years ago, and the Trojan War began because of a messy love triangle. Helen of Troy was the face that launched a thousand ships. And we see more wars being waged today because of love. The culture war over the definition and nature of love and sexuality. So perhaps more than ever before, we need clarity and wisdom on how we are to understand earthly love. And this is why we've been going through a sermon series on the Song of Songs and seeing how a book written 3,000 years ago gives us modern readers desperately needed truth about love. So as we jump back into the book, let's first remember that it is a song, the Song of Songs. It's ancient poetry. So the way that we read it, it's going to be very different from how we read other books of the Bible. And while there is a narrative arc, the story is not told chronologically. So a more helpful way to think about the Song of Songs, it's not one song, but more like a love album. It contains numerous songs about one couple's love story. So we don't get the whole story. There are a lot of gaps, but what this book gives us is glimpses into their relationship. It celebrates different aspects of their love. So the first song in chapter one, we're introduced to a woman. And we saw that she was a commoner whose skin was dark because she has labored and toiled in the fields. But she is passionate. She yearns for and she dreams of her crush. And good news, amazingly, he wants her just as desperately. And as these two young and single people begin to meet and, and date, we see glimpses, again, glimpses, of their sexual longings for one another. And the frustration and, and the suffering that comes from refraining from sex. And they choose to pursue the right relationship in the right way at the right time. So they seek the counsel of their friends in their community, and, and they keep proper physical boundaries. But you know what? It's hard because they're growing closer and closer in their relationship. Go to the next song in chapter 2. The man says, all right, spring is here. And you know what spring means? It's the season for making love. And he might have quoted the poet Katy Perry here when he said, Let's go all the way tonight. No regrets, just love. But you know what? She stops him. She says it's not the right time yet. Instead, she brings him home to her family so that they can receive her family's blessing. And in our passage today, we see a new song. And this song, it, it presents an idealized picture of a love relationship. It is a celebration of the marriage covenant. Look with me at the first verse in the passage. Who is this coming up 
from the wilderness, like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of of the merchant. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. And we find out later that it is the woman, perfumed with myrrh and incense. She is walking down the aisle. We have here a wedding ceremony. In verse 11, Solomon himself is pictured as the groom. And even though this is an ordinary wedding between two commoners, this wedding is pictured as a royal wedding. Did you know that according to the blog The Knot, the average wedding in Manhattan costs $76,944? That's more than the median household income in the United States. People are spending more to get married than ever before in history. And there's so much pressure for couples to have the perfect ceremony and reception. And at every wedding that I officiate, I tell the couple and everyone gathered that the beauty of this occasion is not where wedding blogs and bridal magazines and movies and songs tell us to find it. Marriage is beautiful because of what it is and what it points to. There is no such thing as an ordinary Christian wedding because if you think about it, every Christian wedding is a royal wedding because God is a great king. One of his beloved sons is marrying one of his beloved daughters. It is the marriage of a royal prince to a royal princess. And this world has a fascination, as many of us do here, with royal weddings. William and Kate, Harry and Meghan, we watch the proceedings and there's a sense of grandeur and otherworldliness to the fairy tale event of a lifetime. But to miss that in the simple union between two ordinary believers, it's to misunderstand the beauty of marriage. One of the most popular shows in America today is The Bachelor franchise, and I'm sure no one here watches that show. Each season, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette seeks to find love from a group of 25 or so hopeful contestants competing to win his or her heart and hand. And the season culminates, I'm told, in an epic proposal. (laughs) But shockingly, shockingly, the success rate of these couples is awful. They almost never make it to marriage, at least not with the person on the show. And I think it's because the show is built on a false premise. It's the premise that love can be created or engineered or sparked by the right trappings and circumstances. The extravagant houses, the lavish dates, the exotic locations, the expensive gifts, the emotional highs. And what ends up happening is that these relationships become a mile high and a mile wide, but about an inch deep. If you ever talk to people who have lost spouses, it's never the big moments, the gifts, the trips that they miss the most. It's the everyday life, the mundane, the ordinary. These things are what they cherish and they hold on to in their hearts. We have in this song two ordinary people from the country getting married. 
Solomon and all his wealth are mentioned because what they share with each other, it's even better than that. In fact, if you think about it, Solomon had all the wealth in the world, but what did he end up with? 700 wives, 300 concubines. Women for Solomon, they were either political arrangements or accumulated property that he could never get enough of. On the surface here, this wedding looks so simple, so ordinary, but the reality is that this royal wedding is greater than anything that Solomon himself ever experienced. So as we get to chapter 4, the groom begins to speak. Verse 1, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. And you know what the groom is doing here? The groom does here what every groom should do. He shifts the attention to his bride. You know, one funny moment in every wedding that I officiate is the beginning, as we're waiting to enter the ceremony. And I'm always standing next to the groom because I kind of lead the groom and the groomsmen in. And without exception, the groom is nervous, pacing, fidgeting. This is the biggest moment of his life. And at one wedding this summer, the groom asked me if I was nervous. (laughs) And I said to him, why would I be nervous? No one is here to see me. They're all here to see you. And I don't think that helped. (laughs) What I should have said was, don't worry. She's going to steal the show. As a groom walks in, Everyone looks at the groom. But then he stands by the altar and he turns to wait for his bride. And when she enters, every eye is on her. That's what's happening here. The groom stands and celebrates the beauty of his beloved. He stares at her and he is stunned. He is captivated by her radiance. He feasts his eyes on her, and he describes every part of her. Take a look back at your passage and kind of keep your finger there because we're going to go back and forth. Verse 1, your eyes behind your veil are doves. He says, they're like, your eyes are like gentle doves behind the veil. He goes on, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the hills of Gilead. Now, this sounds very weird. <laughs> if I told my wife that her hair looked like jumping goats, I don't think that she'd take that as a compliment. But I think what he's saying is this, your hair is long and flowing. Gilead was a beautiful place. This is my favorite, verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. <laughs> Here's what he's saying. He's basically saying... Your teeth are clean, white, straight, and they're all there. (laughs) Again, this doesn't seem like a huge compliment, but I want to say dental hygiene has come a long way in 3,000 years. The joke goes that even Solomon couldn't find a good orthodontist. Verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. The interesting thing here is that she's wearing a veil, so he can't even see her face. But he's saying that your beauty is shining through the veil. 
Verse 4, your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. She has a long neck like a tower. And her necklaces, rows of necklaces, they remind him of the rows of shields that line the walls of David's fortress. Verse 5, your breasts are like two fawns. I think some college students just woke up. <laughs> like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. He says her breasts are like two fawns of a gazelle. The image here is of gentleness and grace. You, you catch a glimpse of them in the forest before they disappear into cover. This is erotic poetry, but it, it's never obscene or, or vulgar. It's beautiful. And he stops there, and I'm kind of relieved that he does, because he's already described seven parts of her anatomy. And seven, if you recall, it's the biblical number of completion. And he sums it all up in verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no flaw in you. You are perfect. That's what he's saying. Here we see the posture and the beauty of love. It, it's all about lifting the other up. And this is the difference between love and lust. Lust seeks to consume, to satiate an appetite, to take. Love is to praise. Love finds joy just in the admiration of it all. Love is delighting and glorifying the other. And this is so important to a marriage. Do you know that feeling when you first start liking someone? You get nervous. Butterflies in the stomach, dry mouth, sweaty palms. You can't form a coherent sentence. Why is that? That happened to me when I was first dating my wife. I was like, I do public speaking for a living and I can't get one sentence out. It's because, especially in the beginning, you idealize the other person. The other person is placed on the highest pedestal and there are no flaws. But you're acutely aware of your own flaws, so you're worried, how could a person this perfect ever like someone like me? As imperfect and as messed up. But what happens is the more you get to know that person, the more comfortable you get because that person is no longer on a pedestal, no longer a caricature that you've created, but actually a real person. You know, when I, when I do premarital counseling with a couple, one of the first things I do is I have them share their story with me. Where did you meet? First impressions? Who liked you first? First date, etc. And then I ask them to list 10 things that they love about the other person and make them want to get married. And it's, it's, it's funny because they're, they're, they're very much kind of young and excited and they're like, how can I narrow it down to only 10? It's so easy for them to do, but it's fascinating because on the other end, I can give that same exercise to a married couple who's been unhappy and fighting and bitter for years and they would have a really hard time with it. But if I said, can you list 10 flaws, it would be so easy for them to do. Why? It's because they've also created caricatures of the other. But rather than idealizing them, they've exaggerated and magnified their flaws. And this is why we tell fighting couples in counseling, don't use language like always and never because you're not viewing the other person as they truly are. 
Instead, you're dwelling on their negatives, on their flaws. And then that becomes who they are. And you end up with a very negative image of your spouse. And do you know when a marriage is truly over? You know, aside from instances of adultery or abuse. It's not when a couple can't stop fighting. It's when there's nothing left but contempt for the other person. When, when you can't think of anything admirable or beautiful in the other. Can I speak for a moment to the married couples in this room? Protect your image of your spouse. Guard it. Feed it. Protect it. Do what the groom is doing here. Make a list of the things that you find beautiful and praiseworthy in your spouse and continue to update it. For anniversaries and special occasions, share the list with one another. And do this especially when you don't feel love toward your spouse to remind you of your love. Tim Keller says this, love is primarily giving. It's an action that leads to a feeling, not a feeling first. Cultivate, protect the way you view, admire, and love your spouse so that even when you are painfully aware of all your spouse's flaws, you will still be able to say, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. And now five times in verses 8 through 12, the groom calls her his bride. And this is the only time in the whole book of the Song of Songs where he calls her his bride. And what's interesting is that he also calls her his sister. My sister, my bride. And the illustration here, it's like a brother and sister who are very close in age and they grew up together and they know each other intimately. And what we learn from this is the richness of intimate love. The expression of love, it's not just physical sex, but there is deep friendship and companionship here. Emotional and spiritual intimacy. They're best friends. They're like brother and sister. Verse 9, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. He says, you have stolen my heart. He's saying this, my heart, it belongs to you. It's yours. And throughout this whole passage, when he refers to her, he uses the first person singular possessive pronoun, my, my. When he talks about her, 20 times he does this. And this is the heart of marriage. It's mutual belonging. He is hers and she is his. Not just body, but heart, the whole person. You have stolen my heart, it's yours. Verse 11, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. And the milk and honey here, it's a reference to the promised land that God swore to Israel. Remember, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's comparing her to the land that God had prepared for his people to possess 
everything up until this point. It had been wandering in the wilderness, seemed like forever, waiting to enter the promised land. But he's saying this, finally, finally the time has come. Verse 12, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. In the, you know, in the ancient world, you didn't have Central Park and, and Bryant Park and Madison Square Park. There were no public parks. The only gardens in the ancient world, especially in this time and this place, the only parks were the private gardens of the privileged and the rich. And they were kept locked to prevent commoners or anyone else from entering. And he's saying this, this paradise before me, it's been off limits to me. It's been locked until now. Verse 16, she says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. At last, in this verse, she gives him her consent. She invites him to bed to consummate their wedding vows. And these are, they're, they're words of arousal. Let my beloved come into his garden, taste its choice fruits. His answer in, verse five, uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, I have come. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. These two verses, invitation and acceptance, they are at the very center of the Song of Songs. It, it is the climax, if you will, of the entire book. There are 111 verses before and 111 verses after these two verses at the very center of the poem. And you know what? We get taken right up to the edge here. Phil Riken in his commentary, he says that it's as though the groom and bride are entering the bedchamber and he closes the door and she pulls down the shade and we are outside the room with the rest of the friends blessing this marriage and giving a benediction to them as they consummate their vows. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. You know, there's nothing sinful or, or vulgar here. There's nothing pornographic here. It's beautiful. And this song, it, it's not mainly about sex. It's about love. Not about bodies, but whole people coming together. A spiritual union of two people becoming one flesh. My sister, my bride. We see spiritual friendship expressed, yes, sexually. But that is the beautiful design of love and sex. And this culture has reduced sex to an act, an appetite to fill, something to take, not something to give. What we see here in Song of Songs 4, it is the ideal picture of marriage. Now, it's very easy to look at this description of perfection and be discouraged and even to despair. You might be thinking, 
my, my marriage isn't like that at all. Or, or I'm not married. I'm single, and I have no prospects of marriage. Or you might be thinking, I, I just ended a marriage. Or I, I ended a dating relationship. Or you might be thinking, I, I, my past is riddled with struggling with, with sexual sin. And you know what? I think the Bible is very good at honestly depicting the, this world as it is, broken and, and fallen, but, but sometimes the Bible also gives us glimpses like this of the ideal to point us in the right direction. So if you're married, set this as an ideal. If you're dating, then date the right way in pursuit of this. But even if you're not married or may never be married, I think there's much in this passage that speaks to you. And you may think that you will never experience this royal wedding. You may feel as though you're missing out or being shortchanged. But I want to assure you that you will experience the fulfilled version of this what earthly marriage is pointing towards. You know what? Even if you don't ever get the photograph, you will absolutely get the real thing. I think the reason that an ideal picture of earthly marriage is given here, it's because marriage points to something much greater. This is meant to awaken a longing in us. And the Bible tells us that, that marriage is actually a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. How does a human story begin in the Garden of Eden? With a blind date. Adam opens his eyes and there's Eve. He meets her for the first time. And how does the Bible end with this great wedding feast of the Lamb? And Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the true bridegroom. And the church... Christians from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we are the blushing and beautiful bride. And the whole biblical narrative is a story of how Jesus wins his bride by dying for her sins upon the cross. There's so much grace here. He takes a sinful, adulterous, and ugly church and gives himself for her. He washes her. He cleanses her. He makes her holy and perfect. No stain. No wrinkle. No blemish. You know, I've, I've been studying the Old Testament quite a bit now because I'm preparing for CGs for our community groups. And it's interesting because God relates sin to spiritual adultery, often in the Bible in the Old Testament particularly. God is like a, a, a wounded and hurt husband whose wife has cheated on him. And there are moments where God expresses so much hurt and anger and just raw, visceral emotion. And he says, bluntly, you whore. How could you? But then he promises redemption, and you know what he calls her? He says, O virgin Israel. It's as though the sin has never occurred. And that is what Jesus does in the gospel. He washes us. He forgives us. He remembers our sin no more. 
O virgin Israel, O virgin church, we are that spotless bride. That is our destiny, to be altogether beautiful. Our passage, it ends with husband and wife, and they are naked and unashamed in a garden of love. And of course, this calls us back to Genesis before the fall, the way things should have been. But sin ruined everything, and guilt and shame, it led Adam and Eve to cover themselves and to hide, but Christ takes away our guilt and shame and fixes that which was broken in us. And the amazing thing is this, the way a husband looks at his wife coming down the aisle, that is how Jesus looks at you. We belong to him and we share with him this friendship and intimacy and love that we see in this passage. It's amazing. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that God's thoughts concerning us, they outnumber the sand on the seashore. You know what that means is this, God can't stop thinking about you. He's obsessed with you. That's how beautiful you are to him. Isn't it amazing that God loves you so much that he can't get enough of you? You know, if, if you're not a Christian, perhaps you have questions or reservations about the traditional Christian ethic and teaching concerning sex and love. But I want to invite you to objectively observe this ideal picture of love and perhaps see the beauty of it. You know, Christians are being accused of being prudish or judgmental or dismissive of love and sex, but, but quite the contrary, the Bible celebrates it as it does here. You know, so much is made of what the Bible is against, but this is what the Bible is for. And it points to a love even greater than anything you and I understand, but a love that God has for sinners like you and me. You know, through the Song of Songs, Jesus is inviting all of us to come away with him, to be his love. You know, in a few moments, we're, we're going to come to the table and we're going to eat and drink. So can I close by giving you the same words of blessing that the friends gave this couple? Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news um, that you love us even though we don't deserve it, even though we are sinful and fallen creatures. And I thank you that you have given us this gift of earthly love to mirror your love for us and to, to give us pictures and glimpses of it. And I pray that we would really pursue and use love, earthly love, in the right way. Give us much wisdom as we look to earthly love. And I pray that it would point us to a much greater love. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.